Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan. Malaysia is becoming increasingly polarised across racial and religious lines. And while the culture wars dominate political discourse, inequality is on the rise. The gap between the rich and the poor continues to widen at an incredibly rapid pace. On today's show, I will be in conversation for 45 minutes with Dr. Jayakumar Devraj, Chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia. Dr. Kumar believes that we are so distracted by racial and religious sentiments that we are not talking about one of the biggest issues plaguing Malaysia right now, transnational capital and how we are all subservient to it. Dr. Kumar, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. I want to start by just talking about how you read Malaysia and where we are today. What are some of the biggest challenges facing Malaysia right now? One of the biggest challenges that we are facing now is that we are actually becoming more and more subservient to transnational capital, hmm. to the large multinational corporations. And uh, part of the problem is we don't seem to be aware of it. The mainstream parties, whether in the government or the opposition, don't seem to be aware that this is a major issue that is uh, holding back, stunting our development. Our GDP in 1970 was 11.8 billion. By 2019, it came to 1,513 billion in 2019. Okay, the CPI, cumulative CPI in that's 50 years from 1970 to 2019 was about 5.29 times, 5 mm -hmm. to 9%. So if you divide the 1513 by 5.29, you get 286. Right. So it's 11.8 to 286 billion increase in real terms, mm -hmm. a 24-fold increase in the wealth that our economy is producing. But you take the medium wage of the factory worker, it's gone up 1.4 times. So 24 times on one side, but the real wages of the factory workers have gone up 1.4 times. Right. This is linked to the way in which transnational capital is dealing with us because they say, look, we're coming here uh, to invest in you, but you must keep costs down. And if you don't, we're going to go to Vietnam. Right. So that depresses our wages. Right. You know? uh, that also depresses our taxes because when Thailand reduces the tax to 20%, we, are con we also have reduced our corporate tax. So these are the larger picture which Malaysia is uh, trapped within. You know, we've been, in a way, recolonized, hmm. not by a country, but by this transnational capital which can float around everywhere and take pot shots at us and, and, and play us off against our neighbours. And in the result of that is the wealth that we are generating doesn't go to our, our people as wages. It cannot go to them as, uh, as, as social wages like pension or better health care because the government's in debt, because the government cannot tax the rich, because the government is scared if you tax them more, they won't come and invest here to go to Vietnam. This is a major problem that all third world countries are facing. And the tragedy is in Malaysia, we're not focusing on that, not even identifying this as a problem. You know, we're, we're stuck in a racial paradigm as if that's the main problem. Right. So, Dr. Kumar, that's interesting, right? Because if you look at uh, our political discourse, a lot of it is like 
you mentioned, racialized. So um, when, it, when people think of solution, they think about, okay, should we go from a race-based quota system to a needs-based quota system? This is one of the big um, mm. sort of um, point of contention and, and debate in, in Malaysian politics. Um, and also corruption. When we talk about the big um, uh, financial scandals like 1MDB. So how much of Malaysia's problem would you say is due to capitalism, neoliberalism? Um, and how much is it due to, you know, this, this racialized, um, hyper-racialized politics, um, um, massive corruption? How, how do you look at all of these things? Do they interlink with one another? I think all of them are, are, are real problems, you know, uh, and all need to be addressed. The, the, the main problem, the only, I mean, the only thing is that one, the one you mentioned first, that the fact that the, 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 the subservience to new, to, to uh, transnational capital, is not recognised. Hmm. It's under-recognised. Right. You know, whereas the other two, we are all very really aware of corruption and how bad it is and how it needs to be corrected. And the issue of uh, ethnic politicking and, and, and the ethnic differences that do exist. I think we are all aware of those things, you see. Uh, they are important issues. I'm not saying they don't exist. But I think fundamental issue there is the wealth that we are creating cannot is we can't really use much of it to improve the well-being of our people. And and, and that fuels the, the, the ethnic debate as well. You know, when the when the pie is smaller, then who gets the vasty place, who gets the job becomes so important. You know, it, it exacerbates the racial thing as well. You mentioned how we are becoming increasingly um, very subservient to transnational capital. How is it different now compared to, let's say, 40 years ago? How is it different now compared to, you know, the days before the Cold War, for example? Okay, if you look at it 40 years ago, hmm. in the 80s, our corporate tax was 40% of profits. Uh, now it's come down to 24% of profits. You know? um, that is the effect you know, of the unipolar world and the absence of uh, a Russian bear to scare everyone. You know? So the, uh, the large capital has demanded certain things. You know? Demand a free flow of capital. They demand the right to come and sue governments through the ISDS. They demand the rights to national treatment. Whatever you offer to your local businesses, we must offer to them to us. And these have become codified into contractual obligations in our treaty agreements, promoted by IMF, by, by World Bank, you know, which has given uh, capital, transnational capital, a lot of rights. Uh, intellectual, intellectual property rights, for example, have been tightened up so much. You know? So these all shift the power to the transnationals. So like now in Malaysia, we can't raise wages very much. We are scared. If we raise wages, we won't get investment. If we raise taxes, we won't get investment. We can't do capital controls. Mm. It's become like illegal. You know? So people come in and invest, you know, and they speculate. And when the interest rates in America goes up by a few percent, they take the capital out of here. And then our, and then our ringgit drops in value. We are ransomed to them, you see. Right. And, and they're so scared that this uh, you know, Standard & Poor or Moody will give us a, a bad rating. Then, our, then it's difficult for us to raise capital. So really, we are you know, living in fear of the largest 
transnational capitalists and their rating agencies. 40 years ago, when the world was a bipolar world, there was more space. Countries had more sovereignty. You've lost that and don't seem to realize that we're losing it. What is your vision for building socialism in 21st century Malaysia? Because even the word socialism has evolved over the decades, um, over the centuries perhaps, and you yourself have been a socialist um, you know, throughout your adult life, since your university days, you've been an activist. PSM itself is uh, 25 years old already. Um, when you think of socialism today in Malaysia, what are you envisioning? Mm-hmm. I think we have to move away from what was uh, the idea in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s and 60s, a country like Malaysia, the socialists might think of doing something like Cuba, you know, uh, get free of the capitalist system, then you can link up with an alternative system, which right now doesn't exist. There's no alternative system. The economy in China is a capitalist economy. The economy in Vietnam is a capitalist economy. So is Russia. So there's no socialist bloc you can align to. So socialists then basically have to look at issues like how do we increase the share of the wealth, like in Malaysia, like I mentioned to you, our GDP has gone up 24-fold. But what workers are getting has only gone up 1.4-fold over the last 50 years. So socialists would say, look, how can we address that? How can we make sure the larger share of the wealth uh, that we are creating, that we are generating, goes back to the working people, to the ordinary workers, to the to the farmers, to the small business people? So that is what the kind of thing we've got to decide. We have to think about whether we need to have regional alliances. If you want to raise uh, corporate taxes Maybe it's not possible to do it only in Malaysia, but can we, if we can persuade you know, the Philippines and, and, and Thailand and Vietnam that we should together raise it a little bit so we all have better social protection. So that, I think, socialism has got to be realistic. What is possible now? You know, uh, We've got to think of how can we increase control over our own economy. I'll give you an example. You know, I'm working with the farmers, right? And periodically, we get a glut of vegetables coming in from Thailand. Vietnam. And they have overproduction there. They just come across the border and sell it here. Prices go down. And here the farmers lose. Now, it's not really a problem of the farmers, you know, because if too many farmers close down, then we become more and more dependent on import of vegetables. Right. And at a time when there's shortage there, you know, or when our currency depreciates, then we are going to be hit with inflation locally. You see? But the thing is, you know, we are tied by the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement. Uh, uh, from uh, putting tariffs on vegetables. We can't. Contractually, we can't. So maybe we've got to renegotiate things like that, you know, that these things like uh, free trade is important, but it doesn't trump everything. And food security is one thing it doesn't trump. So when food security issues come, we can... So we've got to go back to ASEAN free trade agreement and say, look, guys, let's look at it again. Or, for example, capital flows. I think we need to to see how we can put up some barriers to speculative capital. People will just bring it in here because of, you know, especially financial capital. We bring it in because our interest rates are a little bit better than US, then it's not so good to take it out again. I, I think we should say, okay, if foreign capitalists want to come and help us develop a productive capacity, then they have certain rights. And, and we should allow them to move the capital freely because they're coming in seriously for long-term thing. But this speculative capital coming in and out and, you know, Uh, shorting the ringgit. I mean, those kind of things, why should we allow it? 
socialism now is about renegotiating our position in the global economy. All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Jayakumar Devraj, Chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia. We will continue our conversation after these messages. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Because Freedom Matters, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan and with me via Zoom is Dr. Jayakumar Devraj, Chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia. This conversation will also be available on podcasts. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box on the BFM app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We would really appreciate it if you subscribe to us on Spotify and drop us a review. So, Dr. Kumar, I want to circle back and talk about, um, you know, where we are today in Malaysia. Because if you look at the results of GE15 um, and the subsequent state elections, um, you know, I, I think what it really highlights is that Malaysia is incredibly polarised, um, especially across racial and religious lines, perhaps more than ever. Um, as a socialist... Um, what is your read on this? Election results show that our society is very polarized in terms of ethnic. Hmm. You know, I think this time, uh, last time around, the uh, Malay vote, almost about 90% went to Rikatan right. National. Mm -hmm. And the non-Malay vote, Chinese vote, about 90% went to Pakatan, you know. And Indian world maybe about 80, 75, 80% in the Pakatan. So we're really racially divided. And I think that's a big obstacle because we're not talking along the same wavelength. You see, for example, recently there was a young man during convocation who talked about uh, meritocracy and how about his friend didn't get a matriculation course and all that. And a lot of uh, non-Malays have been circulating that. You know, It's like, oh, the guy said it. It's exactly nailed it and all that. You know, and, and that just, okay, I, I, I understand a lot of non-Malays uh, feel uh, frustrated, feel disappointed because they do well in school, especially those from the lower economic groups. They do well and they can't get the courses they want and they and it's frustrated. So that is a real problem. You can't say no. But at the same time, the people are concerned about this problem, just are giving a solution coming from their side, which is meritocracy, is what the DP is talking about since a long time, without seeing what is the impact of that on Bhumiputras, for example. Now, I would think if you allow meritocracy, let's say implement meritocracy coming here, I would think that only about, well, 25% of the incoming medical class or engineering class would be Malays, and they make up 70% of the population. So it is not politically sustainable to, to, to suggest that, even suggest that, that you can implement that. So why are we suggesting a solution which we know will sound good to our side, will get us votes, will make people say, ah, you're talking the right thing, right, brother, go for it. But you know, the, it's not possible. You know? So I think we need to put ourselves in the shoe of the other side and say, look, even after 70 years of independence, you know, there is a problem of Malay poverty. You look at the EPF, you know, and earlier this year, there was, earlier last year, there was this uh, thing in parliament where they talked about the median EPF savings uh, of the different racial groups. And Chinese was about 45,000, Indians about 25,000, 
and millage is about 15,000 median EPF savings. That means even in the modern economy, generally speaking, Malays are getting lower wages, they're holding lower positions. And how about outside the modern, outside the formal sector, you have the agricultural sector where it's even worse. So there is still significant Malay poverty, which we as Malaysians, as a Chinese, as an Indian, we should be concerned there is still Malay poverty. Why is that there? And what can you do about it? So we cannot suggest solutions that we like. Meritocracy, you know, we like it. Can the other side accept it? So I think we each just play to our own gallery without saying, how do we solve this problem? You know, let's say uh, in a middle-class family, like my, my family, you know, I'm a doctor, my wife is a teacher. So of course, our children will be speaking English from the beginning and they'll be having a certain level of discussion and a certain importance on education and, and, and they'll, do, they'll do better. And, and if you do any problems, we'll send them for tuition, we'll help them ourselves. So they, compared to a person who's staying in an estate, for example, or Orang Asli Kampung or rural Malay, you know, their parents probably will not know enough. They won't have the, you know, the, the means to help the children. So, so it's not, it's not a level playing field. So I think we got to look into that. So I think we got to look at the reality of it. I mean, the Malays have become left behind because of a conscious British policy and bringing non-Malays to do the work for the colonial economy. I mean, non-Malays were exploited by the British, but they had urban living and they had more access to education and they were part of the modern economy. And so they were a few steps ahead of the Malay population at, at, at Merdeka. At Merdeka, only 5% of the doctors in the country were Malay. 5% of you know engineers, less than 5% of accountants. So they started on a very... Uh, so when people look at the NEP and look at the quota system and say, Oh, it's because of Kurtuanan Malayu, because you think you are going to try, you have a right. I don't think that's why it came about. It came about because the Malays were socially, economically denied in the British period, and they were backward, and they needed affirmative action. You know, So, like for example, what we have said for this particular thing of uh, quotas, for instance, what we're saying is, can we go to the ethnic ratios for admission? That means 70% should be Bumitra, 24% should be Chinese, 6% should be Indians for all courses. Right. But then within that quota, for the 70% going to the Bumitra, 50% should go to the B40 among them. Hmm. 50% of their 70% should go to the B40. 35% of their 70% should go to their, their M40. And 15% of their their 70% should go to the T20. That will be then fair. And then put in a proviso that you must have, even if you're from the B40 and you're getting a place, uh, you must reach a certain minimum in your pre If you don't get that minimum, you've got to defer, go for, you can have a choice, go for another course. Let's say you get medicine, hmm. but you haven't got the grades. You have a choice. You can go to science. Or if you want to do medicine, give you one more year of pre-med. You do it. Get to the minimum, then we let you go into medicine because we cannot have doctors who are half trained. But that is doable. But we're not doing that. See? Each side just talks to its gallery in a way that just, uh, you know, uh, makes the other side get very offended, you know, get very upset. So I think that is the problem of having race based political parties. So even let's say DAP or PTR, they're not supposed to be race based, but still. The Indian politicians in DAP still play the racial card to Indians. 
They are the Indian voice within DAP. And that's why they hold a position. So they are as racial as the MIC fellows in the end, you know. So I think we are stuck in that. I mean, until we start thinking as Malaysians, we're going to be stuck in this. So I think all, you know, SMEs, for example, look at SMEs which employ more than 10 people. How many percent of them are going to try? Mm. I think it's very small. So that is a problem. How do we handle that? I think we need to look at all these issues, you know, uh, across the board. And, and Malay should be concerned about non-Malays facing problems, you know. And non-Malays should be concerned about the problems that the Malay peasants are facing in terms of the you know, low prices of commodities and all that. We should all, this is a Malaysian problem. Only when we start having that interest can we get together and solve this. Actually, we can. There's, if, we, if the 24-fold increase in our GDP, a bit more of it were to come to, to address these kind of things, we can do a lot of things. I think so because we get stuck in the racial thing, we forget the larger picture, which is a lot of our wealth is going to the transnational capital. And we're losing sight of that, completely losing sight of that. Right. And you're fighting for a small pie because the pie has been made small by all this ex- extraction of wealth. You know, when we look at the results of the elections, um, there is a lot of analysis on how people are divided across racial and religious lines, which which I think is absolutely true um, because it's very pronounced. But one thing I noticed after the results of the recent state elections, um, where six states went for elections, is that the three states with the highest median wages voted for Harapan Barisa National, while those with the lowest median wages voted for Perikata National Pass. What does that tell you? I don't know whether that is really the the, the main issue here. Because like I told you earlier, the EPF savings of Chinese, the EPF savings of Indians and the savings of Malays, you know, so I think the higher median wages basically shows there were more non-Malays in that state. Right. You know, <laughs> so it's it's more racial. It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, I don't think it's socioeconomic that you know the, uh, the, the poorer non-Malays voted for EN. No, or the richer, generally richer Malays voted for PH. I don't think it's that way. You know? hmm. I think it's basically because. Uh, the, a lot of non-Malays felt the PH would 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 would, uh, would modify the NEP in a way that benefits them, and Malays felt the same thing that they the, the PH would modify the NEP in a way that disadvantages them. Basically, that's that's the divide that you know, and and, and that's why people voted the way they voted. Right. I do wonder if there is an element where the quote-unquote progressive parties are unable to galvanise the working class and are only getting votes from the quote-unquote learned university college graduates kind of thing. I'm wondering if there is an element of that in Malaysia, which is why I also brought up the median wage analysis there. Because even when we look at, let's say, Brazil, where, you know, someone very progressive like Lula managed to, you know, through the, the skin of his teeth, marginally win the elections, you realise that it is not the same as what it was 40, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, where the progressives is actually getting votes from the working class masses, the poorest people in society. 
even in fact in in Brazil um most of the 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 working class masses the the poorest people in society all voted for Bolsonaro see like now we are working with the farmers you know mm-hmm. around Quinta right. I've got a group of about almost 300 400 farmers mm-hmm. working with uh, fighting eviction and all that and of course they are very mm, happy uh, uh, PSM and they are very uh, grateful that we're helping them and you know we have a dinner and all that we can buy tables and come but their understanding of the issue is still racial right their understanding of the overall issue we haven't yet been able to we're talking about their issues yes we're working with them but the overall issues about the nep about the, the, the racial uh, configuration of the country and all that they would resonate more with dap mm. than with our analysis right with the, the class analysis so it's true when you work with uh, indians in estates or spot areas for the issue we are working with on them they they they, they understand and they, and, they, and they agree and they work but the overall issue on race they still take the conventional the 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 the, the, the common narrative that the parties have been playing for the last few years they still stuck in that mindset so we are working with people but we haven't won them over to our way of looking at it you know the the the, the hegemony of the racial narrative is something that we haven't penetrated yet mm. so that's where we are stuck we are we are we are helping people you know people work for us maybe they feel sorry for us you know but you know but <laughs> they are not understanding that we are bringing a different paradigm you know we haven't managed to to say look our narrative is completely different it's a different paradigm and we haven't managed to get it across to the masses and until we do that we got to losing at elections i mean we will not be able to 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 win elections unless more people switch over to this paradigm which is actually more social economic based more class based more aware about the things i'm talking about transnational capital the need to work together the need, you know all these things so we need so the left has got to think of how can it promote uh, its, its its alternative vision and get it understood why do you think um, if you look at where we are today why is the left so weak be it in malaysia or many parts of the world because you bring up you know in one thing very important right now in malaysia when we look at our neighbors when we look at um, who's um, living across the street when we come and see our colleagues and so on and so forth our primary prism to which we look at the world is through a racial lens otherwise a religious lens that comes first and foremost right there is that sense of solidarity quote unquote among racial um, people of the same race same ethnicity same religion but not so much uh, uh, looking at the world through a class prism right but this is not just a malaysian problem it's a problem across the world maybe in certain countries it may not be rel- uh, 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 maybe it may be different religion like here it's uh, islam versus um, bukan islam Mos- uh, muslims versus non muslims in in that sense um, in other countries it may be evangelical christians that are on the rise now in in india it hindu nationalism that's on the rise in other countries it may be anti immigrant sentiments it may be um, very strong attachment to patriarchy it may be anti gender minorities um, um sort of sentiments um you are seeing different aspects of um, ultra conservatism um really dominate the politics in many parts of the world 
Um, and that is how people are looking at each other, right? Rather than a, a class prism, it is the 99% against the 1% or just, you know, working people of specific industries having a sense of solidarity. Um, how do you read that? If you look at uh, why the centre-left in Europe, you know, has uh, become weakened, I think it's because of transnational capital. You know, uh, even in Europe, the there's been outshoring. Out, out you know, the, 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 the richest, the largest firms uh, were not able to fight with the unions in their own countries. So they basically went to, to this part of the world. They came to Southeast Asia, they went to China, they went to Korea, and they just um, pulled the rug under the unions. They don't know jobs. How can you have unions? You know? so, and and uh, so, so, so the freedom of transnational capital became stronger so even in the West, they had to cut down taxes, you know, they, 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 and they lost businesses, they lost jobs. So all the uh, center-left parties were forced to uh, do things to try and appease transnational capital. They tried to make it better for them. So they were the ones who led the, I mean, either they or the conservatives did the same thing. They implemented neoliberal policies. They had more co-payments. They 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 increased taxes on the ordinary people through the VAT or the, the GST version, right? And they, and they tried to lower corporate taxes and to try and entice their businesses back and all that. So the working people in the West saw that the center-left was as bad as the center-right in, in terms of uh, taking away what they'd won in the 20, 30 years after World War II. All the social rights were progressively taken away by the centre-left and the centre-right. So people then, you know, so when, when you have a person who comes, you know, like Trump or someone in the right wing, you know, who first of all says, look, it's the migrant who's taking away your job and all that. To some extent, that is true. Because you come in, migrants come in and you work for lower wages, you're taking away jobs. The partial truth there. And so people go for that. This internationally is happening because the centre-left, the left that was in power in many countries, has actually uh, shot itself in the foot by not recognizing transnational capital, by not recognizing or do something about it, trying to appease it and, and, and bring in neoliberal policies, austerity, and all stuff like that. So that, I think, explains, like in America, for example, I mean, the, the people who most supported Trump are the white working class who have been left without jobs, the whole Rust Belt, you know. They, they have left without jobs because so many American jobs went to Mexico, went to China, you know, and 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 uh, fueled by trade agreements that the liberals and the left supported in America. I mean, not really left, but liberals in America supported NAFTA and all the trade agreements, which are bad for the American working people. So, so of course they've lost their 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 faith. I think in America, especially, it's almost like a civil war situation. They've completely lost their faith in the centre-left, in the progressives, in the liberals. And they don't trust anything you say. You say, take vaccine, they won't take vaccine. They wear a mask, they won't wear a mask. I mean, you know, they become unscientific in a way. Right. But you can see where it's coming from. It's coming from the fact that for 30, 40 years, the centre, the Democratic Party, is supposed to be more for working people, has also undermined the lives of working people. So that is one aspect. Mm -hmm. The other aspect you ask is, why is the left weak? I think we need to be critical about the left as well, because I think I think many parts of the left 
are caught in a time warp. We're still thinking that we are Che Guevara and Cuba and Castro. And, you know, when when the, the, the macro situation doesn't allow that, you know, you know, there's no way you're going to be riding into a tank, into a capital of a city and taking over. I mean, you know, it's not going to work. It's not, that's not where we are now. First of all, we've got to be realistic. What can we do? And there are things we can do, you know. But right now, I think it's renegotiating our position within the whole global economy, clawing back a bit more of a surplus that we are producing and using it to have better social wages, better social protection, environmental protection, you know, uh, creating more productive capacity which is independent of the transnationals. I mean, there are things we can do and, and, and we should do. So if we focus on these things and, and bring up realistic programs, I think we'll get somewhere. You are someone who is very grounded and one of the very interesting things you have told me in, in our previous interviews and also mentioned in various interviews in the past is that you said that even if Malaysia has a socialist government tomorrow, you said it would be unwise to just upend the whole system. So I guess the first question is, why can't we just change the whole system? Like you, like how some people are romanticizing um, certain revolutionary figures, for example. Why can't we do that? And if we can't just change it to a socialist um, system the way some people imagine it to be, how do we manage well, I think, you know, um, if Malaysia was self-contained economically, then we can talk of upending the system, you know. But we're in a situation where our exports in terms of value are about 65, 70% of GDP. That means we need to export to be able to, to get money and, 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 and for employment, you know. So you can't tell them, get lost, we don't need you anymore because... They can, they can go to Thailand. They, they don't care. They can go to Thailand. They can go to Vietnam. It costs a bit of money, perhaps, to go and open new factories there, but they can do it. Then what do we do after that? You know, we can't use the old machines to make the micro, you know, the, the components, because those components belong, in, so patents as well, but also those components belong to certain products. We can't just use in other products, you know. So we'll be stuck. A whole electronic uh, sector would be high and dry. You know, who do we sell to? You know, so 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 we got to recognize where we are. I think we got to be realistic. We are a fairly small country, and we are we are kind of articulated in this global economy. We're quite dependent, and the transnational capital is very powerful, very dominant. So what we got to do is, we got to think of how do we uh, create the space. You know, for example. We would like to kind of uh, bring in things like a pension, right, or old age. We need to try to kind of improve the health budget so that we can have more hospitals and all that. So basically, we need a larger government budget. So I think a socialist government would say, okay, okay, one is, of course, you know, we can reduce, try and reduce corruption, for example. We can try all certain projects which are very high profile and expensive, maybe you can delay those. But also, I think we'll be talking, we'll try and talk to our neighbors, Indonesia and, and Vietnam and Thailand and say, look guys, why are we playing this game of lowering corporate taxes to get FDI? This is the race to the bottom. Shall we all agree that we'll stop doing that? You know, Shall we all agree that we'll put this into our free trade agreement 
of ASEAN saying that if anyone does that, we will incur a, 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 a tariff against all the goods from that country to the other countries in ASEAN. Start talking along those lines. Now, if we can succeed in that and agree we can increase our our our, our corporate taxes from its current 24% to 30% across ASEAN, everyone does that, over 10 years. Then the whole of ASEAN then has more money for environmental protection, more money for social protection, you'll be a happier ASEAN. So I think we will be we'll be doing things like that, like, you know. I mean things that are possible, not that easy, but possible. We can we can discuss. There are things like a thing called debt monetization. Where basically you you sell bonds to your own national bank. Okay. Now, now that has got certain problems. It can it can spark inflation. It can you know it can spook investors and all that. But it can be done in small amounts, and especially if it's done together with other ASEAN countries, you know it it, it might work. So there are things we can do. But you see, it's basically it will be a socialist party trying to manage a capitalist economy uh, without upsetting the apple cart. At the same time, developing productive capacity, you know. If certain firms go away, can we get a, a workers' corporate take over that particular factory and we use that? The government puts in money. So we try and develop our own local capacity. Whether we can improve our, our technological capacity together with other ASEAN countries, mainly in public transport, pharmaceuticals. So I think, you know, things that we can think of doing, I think definitely we've got to improve food security. I think now we are actually very food dependent from, from outside. They're very dangerous. I think we should increase our, our rice production must go to 100%. Because we can't produce wheat. We, we, we import a lot of wheat. And, and there's no way we're going to produce wheat. That is our rice must be 100%. You know? So I think we've got to look at those kinds of things and make ourselves more resilient. So I think there are, these are realistic things that a socialist can do right now. You can't make dreams based on the geopolitical situation of the 1950s and 60s. The times have changed. And socialists have got to change with the time. And I think the, the sad thing is many socialist groups haven't. I'm not saying you shouldn't read Lenin. I mean, you can. But remember, Lenin actually did a lot of empirical studies. They really looked at the situation and saw what was working. So you just can't do a cut and paste, you know, from different eras. You see? We can take the principles and see whether it applies or not. So during the Cold War era, we had the communist bloc and the Western capitalist bloc. And since the 80s and 90s, um, as after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we shifted to a unipolar world. And right now, after 40 years, we are, in, we are in an interesting point because of the rise of China. What does the rise of China mean for Malaysia and ASEAN? They are the second biggest economy in the world. Um, I mean, on the one hand, it to me, it seems like it brings about plenty of opportunities, but on the other, we do need to be wary, right, that they could become another imperialist force. China was really a poor country at the end of World War II. They had gone through years of war. They had a very low productive base. You know? And I think we can... But now they are... I think the GDP is... If you take it in real terms, I think the GDP is probably more in the US even now already. You know? And I think important lessons we can learn from China is they are not dependent on the West for technology anymore. They've developed their own technology, they've developed their own industry, 
So they no longer can be bullied by transsexual therapy. They make use of it. They still need some of it. But even if they say, oh, we're not going to give you the, the, the things for the microchips, they can do it themselves. It is, takes a little bit longer, but they have the capacity. So I think other parts of the world have also got to see that we need to have greater capacity in industry, greater capacity in, uh, in, in, in technology. Cuba, which is about what, 10, 12 million people, was able to make three different vaccines during the COVID. We, we were caught flat-footed. We couldn't. You know, Cuba can do it. It's such a poor country as well. Why can't ASEAN have something on pharmaceuticals? Right. We do it together. We plan together. We use the whole market. Maybe different different countries produce different, different products. We must get this capacity so we're no longer beholden to the transnationals, right. which are bullying us with their, with their huge patents and all that. Or like, for example, public transport, you know, electric buses. Shouldn't we be thinking how we can do it in ASEAN so that we import it from Germany or from Japan? We do it here, it creates jobs here, we have the capacity here. We got to think along the lines of regional blocks. From China we learn, eh? as far as possible, can we become more self-sufficient in food? Food is very important. And after food comes things like healthcare. Here in Malaysia, almost all our industrialization is linked to global chains. Yeah. And, and that puts us in a very weak position because, you know, if we don't sell them the, 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 the component, the electronic component at the price they're asking for, they'll say, okay, I'll, I'll take it from Thailand, I'll take it from Vietnam. And we're getting a fraction, you know, uh, we're getting the components you're producing in Malaysia, we're getting maybe one-sixth or one-eighth of what that component would fetch in a, from a factory in Germany or the US. They're coming here because of that reason. And, and that means our labor is not being respected. I mean, our labor is not being valued, you know. And it's because we are dependent on them. So I think we need to look at things like that. Um, having said that, I, I don't think Chinese capitalists, because China is coming here and Chinese capitalists are coming here, I don't think Chinese capitalists are going to be any more altruistic than European capitalists. Right. Or, or American capitalists. So we can't expect them naive. Chinese company going to come here, they're going to treat us better. No, you can't be naive. Uh, I think we need to be careful about uh, Chinese, uh, just like foreign capitalists, even Chinese capitalists. We've got to see what they're doing. And if they're doing anything against the environment, against workers' rights, we've got to speak up. Just mm-hmm. because for China doesn't mean we are going to be light on that. But I think having different sources where we can get investment, uh, different sources where we can get funds, different sources where we can get technology, and different places we can sell our goods gives us some I'll call it wriggle room. We get a little bit more space to move mm-hmm. where we can. So that's a good thing for us. And the other good thing is to learn from what I said earlier, you know, about developing our technological base and delinking from the whole global process. And, and if you look at China, if you look at it, it's a situation where the economy is running on capitalist lines. But unlike America, the politicians are not in the pockets of the billionaires. In the U.S., the billionaires really control the whole system. In fact, the military-industrial complex calls the tune that the whole of America is dancing to. Whereas in China, it is still the Communist Party, which is in ultimate power. But you've seen you know, how the way they treated Jack Ma, for example, how they treated the tuition thing, for example, uh, how they're able to get the surplus from the country to build infrastructure like the high-speed railway and, and stuff. The, the fact is, 
the billionaires right now uh, in China don't control the process yet. It is the new year, Dr. Kumar. Um, it's 2024. So as a sort of um, closing to this conversation, why is it important to be a socialist in 2024? Why should people consider um, that perspective of that uh, political school of thought? Well, I think if you look at Malaysia, uh, we've been independent for about, what, 60-something years. And we're getting, you know, into a mess. We're not able to use the wealth we're generating. Racially, getting more divided. Getting more, there's more identity politics. You know, you're not doing very well. You're not doing very well. I mean, not doing too badly either. I mean, we're doing better than a lot of African countries. But there's a lot of problems. Uh, our youth, our youth are in a real fix. They can't get jobs. The next generation is going to really have a hard time with your with your loans, the cost of living, and the low the wages for graduates and all that. So the 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 at this point in time in Malaysia, we'll say the socialists are the ones who at least have identified the problems. Like for example, we're creating so much wealth, it's not coming to us. Why is it going? Uh, we are the ones talking about transnational capital. We are the ones saying, look. Over the last 30 years, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've lost a lot of the economic levers that government used to have, tariffs, capital controls, and all that. We are the ones identifying these issues. I can't say we have got the solutions, but at least we are talking about the issues that are important. The socialists are the only group who are identifying the real issues instead of dividing people on ethnic issues. So I think we are the voice of, of realism, the voice of the future, you know, and I think people who want to build a better Malaysia have got to look at the reality first and help us develop the answers. On that note, Dr. Kumar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. That was Dr. Jay Kumar, Devraj, Chairperson of Party Socialist Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We are available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box. If you could subscribe to the show and drop us a review, I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9.